If your faith in Christ is not leading you to live a lifestyle of devotion to Jesus, then you're in danger. It's a message that America needs to hear today. everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. I want to welcome everybody here in the house and I want to welcome everybody that's joining us online. Maybe you're coming on YouTube or we have a YouTube channel, Gospel Saving Church on YouTube. We also, I want to welcome everybody from SoundCloud all over the world, wherever you may be coming from. Welcome as we have a lot of listeners on SoundCloud and it's it's a privilege and honor for me to stand here and be able to give you your, your, uh, just feed you this week and, uh, tell you exactly what the Lord has told me. Really, that's all that pastors do, really. It's what they should be doing. Is A good pastor or a good man of God, all he should be doing is just regurgitating what he got from the week, all what he got from the Lord all week long. And so that's all I do. I have no idea when I start my section of Scripture. I know where I'm starting. This week we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. But outside of the section of Scripture I study, I really have no idea what I'm going to say for that week. I, I'm, I'm clueless. I, I have to, and I pray. I, I'll actually, I, 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 not intentionally, but I started before in the past and I just went ahead to start, you know, writing. And then I'll be sitting there for a while and I'll be like, wow, Lord, I, I'm not getting anything. Lord, I'm not, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not getting anything. And the Lord will say, did you ask me for wisdom? And I'll say, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. And I'll say, Lord, please give me some wisdom. And within moments, within moments to minutes, I've got, it starts coming and flowing and everything I'm supposed to say starts coming to me and I start writing it down. And so everything I say to you this during, you know, on Sunday mornings is everything that the Lord has already given me during the week. Anyway, good morning and welcome. And thank you for joining us. As I said already, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. The, um, The title of our sermon is, And They Still Refused to Believe. Once again, And They Still Refused to Believe. Let's read our section of scripture and let's study. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he, Jesus, answered and said to them, 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So I told a brother earlier today, I'm, I'm kind of excited about this one because the Lord really, I've read this over again probably 20, 25 times, and in this section of scripture, I got so much knowledge from the Lord this week, so much awesome knowledge from the Lord this week on this section. I'm just so excited about it. So I hope you are too. So let's get into it. Here we go. So going back last week to this week, we kind of conjoin a little bit before we move forward into that, into this week. I don't know about any of you. All I can say is Jesus's words last week to me have been really impacting the way that I, you know, really not that I was ever uh, not that I ever lived in a heathenistic way since I've come to know Christ, but his words last week really touched my heart. You know, as fact that he said uh, how I, you know, how I speak to others and the words that I use just in general. Remember, he said, uh, remember, he said, by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. And to me, those are some harsh words. I mean, I've read that section of scripture over. But this week, I really was focusing more than ever on how do I respond to somebody, you know, when they answer me. And maybe I'm not happy with the way you know, something they said or something they did, but it really made me look at my own self and how I speak because I, by my words, I'll be justified or by my words, I'll be condemned. And the whole, remember, the whole good tree, bad tree analogy that he gave him or allegory that he gave him that he directed right towards these religious leaders that were there you know, and he was kind of trying to show them that they had evil hearts. So telling them, you know, that their fruit from their tree was bad or sickly and evil. Uh, remember, he said, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. Uh, and again, to me, those are some very powerful, powerful words. Out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. And of course, those words just weren't meant for them then. They were meant for us nowadays, too. To show us if we speak profane and evil words, then what does that mean? If we're still speaking all those evil things out of our mouths, then Jesus is really saying we still need to be converted. We still need salvation. We still need to come to him. We still need to let Jesus Christ rule and reign in our lives. And I don't know about you, but if I would have heard those words that Jesus spoke when I was unsaved, like these Pharisees and these religious leaders were unsaved, uh, they would have frightened me, to say the least. Hell would have been definitely something that I would have been considering, knowing that Jesus Christ considered me evil because of the words that I spoke out of my mouth. Jesus' words were powerful indeed, exposing what again? Remember what we said last week? Exposing the fruit of their lives. He used his words toward these guys like God used his law on people. And Jesus' words and God's law were both meant to do one thing. 
wake people up from the wickedness and sinfulness of their hearts. Both God's law and Jesus' words were meant to do one main thing, to bring us to Christ, to bring us to salvation through the Messiah. What does the Bible say about the law? First, Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is knowledge of sin. So by the law and by Christ's words were our knowledge of sin. The reason Jesus brought up that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, is because he was trying to show them your words are evil. Your heart is evil. Just like a bad tree would produce bad fruit or sickly fruit, whatever words we produce, we're, if we have an evil heart, that evil heart's going to generate that evil stuff out of it. Okay? And the, purpose of, and the purpose of God's law as well as Christ's words to us, Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law, and you can even addendum, and Christ's words, was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. So, the purpose of the allegory of the good tree, bad tree, was to show them and us of our evilness, bring us to Christ Jesus for salvation, bring us to true salvation. I know, again, like I said, I've been saved for a long time, but even just fine-tuning my walk, you know, Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I know that his words kind of put a fear, a new fear on me. Oh, I better watch how I speak. By my words, I'll be justified. Oh, by my words, I'll be condemned. Oh, gosh, that's harsh, harsh. So worked on my speech and my heart, I hope, that during this week as you guys lived, or you guys on SoundCloud or YouTube, I hope as you watch, it worked, that his words worked on your heart and your speech as well. But moving off of that focus, rolling right into this week, did it work on the religious leaders' hearts? Let's read verse 38 of our text again today and see what their response was. Because my response was, Fear and trembling. Oh no, better watch how we speak. Let's see how they acted. Let's, let's get a refresher and see what they said after Jesus used those same words. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Are you kidding me? Wow, is all I can say. Wow, really? It impacted me. His words made me fear and yet they asked for another sign in case you haven't want in case you're still wondering we're still in the same scene jesus is still there with his disciples the multitudes are still all around he's still around the sea where he healed those multitudes nothing's changed the pharisees saw exactly what he just did the pharisees saw jesus's exorcism of this Demon-possessed man that was blind and mute. They just saw it. Are you kidding me? So the miracle that they saw wasn't enough for them. And they respond, uh, May we, we want to see a sign from you. That is absolutely atrocious. And believe it or not, this was not the only time that this happened to Jesus. This wasn't the only time that people did this to him. 
John 6, 1 through 21. We're not going to read all 21 verses. I'm going to skim over the first, and then we'll, get, we'll pick it up in 22. Skimming over, Jesus feeds about 5,000 people. It's probably give or take some men and women, in, or some women and children too. Jesus feeds about 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two small fish. He then sends his disciples away to go get in a boat so that they can cross over. He goes to the mountain and prays until the evening. Meanwhile, his disciples are still in the boat and they're struggling getting to the other side. He comes down, he walks on the sea, he joins them in the boat, they get to the other side, everything's all great, he joins the disciples, the end for that part. So, we pick up in verse 22, on the following day when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea that were there, excuse me, they were standing on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. So the people, after Jesus goes over with his disciples, the people that just got fed from the five loaves and the two small fish, they wake up in the morning, they're stretching out. Hey, where's Jesus? Where did he go? They look over at the seashore and they don't see the boats. They see the boats that, they, that were there, they're gone. And, but they, they didn't see Jesus cross over with the disciples. So they're like, where did he go? Anyway, they get around and they get over there. When the, people there uh, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Notice, you're not seeking me because you saw the signs. Remember that. Remember that as you're listening along. Remember, they saw the signs. And he said, you're not seeking me because of that. You're seeking me because you, were, you, know, you ate and you were filled up. And then he says to them, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, now listen very closely, this is exactly what happened today. Then he said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Awesome, right? You'd think, wow, okay, if I was there and I was one of those guys, I'd be like, amen, let's do it. Hey, praise the Lord, I believe. Their response, verse 30, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? What? What? Again, what? Excuse me, I'm sorry. Therefore they said, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? Well, let me go back up here. Didn't he just say, Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the sign. They, he just said they saw the signs. When they just asking for another one. You mean to tell me that them being fed in the middle of the wilderness? They knew that there was no food out there. 
They knew that there was no, no way that they had food out there, and that yet Jesus fed them. They knew. They, Jesus said they saw the signs, and yet they're asking for another one. What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? These two instances, and there's more. There's more. But in these two instances, for you to see that, for them to see those things, and then still not believe and still ask Jesus for another sign is like a slap in the face to Jesus. It was like totally disrespectful. Yeah, I, I know what you just did, but I want to see some more. So how does Jesus Christ respond in verse 39 today to these Pharisees here? Let's read it. But he, Jesus, answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So he says, he responds to them with calling them evil. And he's done that before. But this time he adds, you're not only evil, but you're adulterous too. Okay? You're evil and adulterous. And he says to them, you know, really? No, I'm not going to give you a sign. <clears throat> no sign's going to be given to you ex except Jonah. Why? Why did he respond this way? Why? Well, here's why. They just saw a tremendous amazing miracle. These guys he's talking to here just saw this demon-possessed man who was blind and mute be healed. They just saw it. They were standing right there. The crowds were probably in awe. People were probably yelling and shouting. People were getting excited. Oh my gosh, who is this? As other times, maybe people in the crowd were going, that's nobody ever done this before. Like nobody ever healed a blind man. This must be the Messiah. Oh my gosh. Wow, this has got to be him. And they saw that. And yet they said, give us another sign. And he says, no, I'm not going to give you another sign. Meaning right for them, because he did a whole bunch of other signs before people. But he just, what they were asking for, give us one right here, right now, so we may see. And he's like, no, I'm not going to give you another one that stand right here and do that. No, because you're evil and you're adulterous and you're wicked, really. So why did they not believe? Why did they not believe? That is a huge question that I've even faced on the streets, at my job. Why do people not believe? Why did these people not believe? Well, simply, God has shown me this in the past, even as I stand here today. Simply, that's where we get the title of our sermon. They just simply refuse to believe. They just simply say, we're just not going to believe in their hearts. Now, could have Jesus done more signs for them right there while he was standing right there? Come on, guys. He was God in the flesh. Do you think he could have? Absolutely. Jesus could have stood there all day long doing signs. He could have made a manna from heaven again. He could have made, you know, the, the, the sea split just like Moses did. He could have said, bring me somebody dead and raise somebody dead to life. But he didn't. He didn't. But he could have stood there all day and did it. And he didn't because even if they would have seen him do signs from nighttime to the next nighttime, one day to the next, 24 hours maybe of signs, they still would have just refused to believe. I've met people like this 
in my life journey with Christ in 14, 15 years. I've met people like this, and, I, and they've told me, oh, you know what? If, if your God's real, if your Jesus is really real, then he can come, if he came right now, and he stood right here in front of me right now, then I'd believe. It, just do it right here. Just, if he just comes down right here. And my response to that, I, you know, different responses throughout the years, you know, I wasn't as bold as Jesus at that time because we're going to look at a section where he, he kind of talks about that with something that happened. But these people are lying simply. As well as the disciples here, or the Pharisees answered and said, uh, saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. No, they didn't. They didn't really want to see a sign because they just saw a sign and they didn't believe. So they didn't really mean what they said. They were lying. The same people that I've met, the same people like the, here that Jesus was talking to here, the same people were super prideful. They were super arrogant. They were super mean. They weren't nice people. They were just like jiting me. Oh, your God's real, make him come down right here and stand right here. And then I'll believe. Well, I know my God. I know God, the creator of heaven and earth. And I can tell you this right now. If that really would have helped these Pharisees, and that really would have helped him coming and standing right there would have really hurt, helped the people that I was standing there with. When they said, if Jesus really came down right here and stood before me, I'd believe. If that really would have made him believe, my God would have done it. Because he can. Because God won't waste his time. And if, if somebody really wants and really is seeking him and really, really, really from their heart really wants to know, God, are you really real? Because he did it with me, he'll do it for you. But these people refused to believe. There was a, an account that Jesus gave of a man called Lazarus who was a poor man and a rich man. And it said that Lazarus sat beneath this rich man's window daily. And as this rich man ate his food, you know, he'd eat and he'd throw his food, his scrap food out the window. And then Lazarus would basically was a beggar. And he sat below this man's window every day and he basically ate the scraps, already eaten off food that this rich man ate off of. Talk about gross. But this man was a beggar and he was like, he was lame and he really couldn't get around much and he had to be brought there. And so the Bible gives this account that they both came, that they were there, you know, the rich man used to throw stuff over and Lazarus used to eat it and all their time came for both of them to die. Because that will happen in our lives, we are going to die. I don't care whether you're Bill Gates or whether you're Joe, uh, you know, Joe Schmo down on Harry Hines that hasn't had a home in 20 years, you're going to die. So each man is going to die. Death, God has told me before, is the great equalizer. Whether you're two or 102, you're going to die. Whether you're rich or you're poor, you're going to die. That's just the way it is. So now they're both in hell. Or they're both, excuse me, they're not both in hell, but they're both in a section of hell. Jesus called one Abraham's bosom, and the other one was called hell. Okay? But it was split off. Abraham's bosom was a place of peace, but it was kind of like they could see hell from where they were at. So they're having this interaction one day and the rich man is down in hell and he's burning and he's burning and burning and he's getting thirsty. And he, so he looks up and he sees Abraham and Lazarus sitting there and he says to you, he says, we pick it up in Luke 16, 27 to 31. He says, I beg you therefore, father, Abraham, that you would send or that you would just send Lazarus down here to me with just a water on, on his hand, just to dip 
the tip of my tongue because I'm so hot. It's so burning down here. And Abraham has this little interaction with him and he says, uh, hey, dude, we can't. There's a fixed chasm in between this and you can't pass from there to here and we can't go from there to there. It's just the way it is. So the rich man realizing, oh man, I'm in a bad situation, but hey, this place is so bad. Wow. Luke 16, 27. He says to Abraham, I beg you therefore, Father Abraham, that you would send into my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. He's arguing with Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they did not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, there's a whole lot we could learn in that section. We're not even going to touch it because that's a whole week on its own right there. But just know, again, Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. What he was saying is they have the proof of God's word that they can go, if they really want to seek, if they really want to know, they can go to the proof of God's word Right here, the Holy Bible. In their day, it was the Tanakh, they, which they considered their Jewish Bible. And they had that, and they could have gone to it, Abraham said, and they could really seek God and find out that, that place, because that place, uh, hell, is in that Old Testament of our Bible, because it was in the Tanakh. They could have seen that. They, and they could have seen the great escape from it, too. They didn't have to go there themselves, either. But see, they, if they really wanted to know, they could have gone. Otherwise, they're just going to refuse to believe. And that was Abraham's thing. Even if one rose from the dead, they already have the proof there with them. Let them go seek the proof. Even because if, if one rise from the dead, they're not going to believe him either. So I say it's really sad. It's terribly sad when people just even see the truth. As I've had people see the truth since I've been preaching for, you know, 14 years, I've seen people see the truth right there in front of them. Miracles done with people. I've prayed for people at work and God's healed them and they still don't convert. They still don't turn to Jesus. They see the miracles just like I've seen and yet they're happy and just content with refusing to believe the truth. It's, it's so sad when people turn, don't turn from their evil ways. So back to our text. No sign for this generation except an old event in history. A man named Jonah who was a prophet. Let's read verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he brings up a man named Jonah. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet. A prophet was some man that heard from God, and he would hear things from God, and then he would go tell the people. So Jonah was a prophet of God. And Jesus says, No sign for you except... This man, Jonah. And what was this man, Jonah's deal? Well, God one day comes to Jonah and he says, Jonah, I want you to go to these evil and wicked and perverse people called the Ninevites. And I want you to go to them and I want you to proclaim destruction upon them. Because what they've done, to, what they, the evil that they've done has come up against me. So I want you to go. So what does Jonah do? He hates them so bad because Jonah was a very hateful man toward these people. He ran the other way. He said, go to Nineveh, 
Jonah got, went to the sea, got on a boat, and went the absolute opposite way from the way he was supposed to go to Nineveh. So God still wanted his message proclaimed to the Ninevites. So he came and had caused this great storm. The sailors ended up throwing Jonah into the sea where a great fish swallowed Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of this great fish for three days and three nights. Jonah, in the midst of this belly of this great fish, decided to repent. God, I'm so sorry. What was I doing? What was I thinking? If you want me to go there, if you want me to do that, then I will. I'll go there and I'll do that. God said, all right. The fish comes up. He spews him out on land. Jonah lands on land. He starts walking through Nineveh and he proclaims God's message to these people, to the Ninevites. So Jesus just used what happened to Jonah in reference to what he was going to go through during his death, burial, and resurrection. And isn't it something? God's so cool. Jonah had no idea that God was going to use his rejection and his disobedience to proclaim what the Messiah, what the Christ of God was going to come and do. Because God can do stuff like that. Jonah had no idea. But Jesus used it, and God used it to proclaim something that he was going to do. I just think God is so awesome. That's so cool. So Jesus says, as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of fish, so will the Son of Man, or me, or himself, be uh, in the heart of the earth. Now, Jonah's event to these guys was really not a sign, like the sign that they were wanting, of course. Jonah, you know, yeah, a great fish swallowed him, and he spewed up. Even to the Ninevites... Okay, they never saw Jonah come up out of the fish and be spewed on the land. Jonah, he, God had the fish spew him up on the, on the, on the sand of the, the sea or the sand of the, the beach, you know, in, in the area near Nineveh. He had to walk to Nineveh. So the Ninevites never saw the sign of Jonah being spewed up on land. And these guys didn't really want that kind of sign from Jesus. They wanted more like what he just did, but then, you know, just I'll just keep testing. Maybe he'll just do it all day long. Because they still were under the impression that, you know, he was just doing the things that he was doing by the power of Satan anyway. So they were just, they had an evil, wicked heart and they weren't wanting to change. They did, they were refusing to believe. So why did Jesus give them this event to look at? And then parallel that event to himself, especially something that hadn't even happened yet. The answer actually comes from a section of scripture out of John, chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. I'm going to read it for you and then I'll explain to you how the answer comes why did he give that, this Jonah allegory or analogy to these guys? John 2, 18 through 22 says, Jesus goes into the temple. Okay, I recap here. I kind of overview. Okay, so Jesus goes walking around. And he's with his disciples and he sees the knowledge of these wicked people making his temple a temple of business. So, of course, he sees that this is happening. And, of course, is the... The godliness in him couldn't stand this evil that was going on in the temple of God. So he makes this whip of cords. He drives out those who sold and made God's house a place of business. And the Jews, of course, get mad at him for doing this. And they say to him again, What sign will you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to him, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So again... We're in, we're in the question of give us a sign. And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. There's that three days again. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this physical temple, is what they were saying. 
and you will raise it up in three days because they were misunderstanding what he was saying. He was talking about the temple of his body and they thought he meant the real temple that he was standing in there. Of course, God could raise a temple that he destroys in three days, even if it took 46 years to build, but that wasn't the context of what Jesus was saying here. But he was speaking of the temple of his body, the Bible tells us. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, here's your answer. Why did Jesus give these guys the sign of Jonah? Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So why did Jesus give them Jonah's event to look at his coming, what was going to happen to him? Believe it or not, this was God's amazing grace to these Pharisees still, even though they refused to believe. He still wanted to give them a chance. He still wanted to give them an option, even though they were refusing to believe, to still have something forward to look at that if they were interested, if they cared, they could really see that he disappeared for three days three nights and then all of a sudden he came back he wanted to still give them proof that he was the messiah so that they could believe just like he did with the other disciples isn't that amazing isn't god's grace amazing god desires to draw mankind to christ jesus and he gives us and them lots of little and even big clues like this one that he gave to the religious leaders to help them and us believe that Jesus is the Christ so that we can put our full trust in him and put our full faith in him and fully live for him and turn to Christ away from our, our, our sinfulness. So coincidentally, did the religious leaders ever find out that this happened with Jesus? Did the religious leaders ever kind of come to the knowledge that Jesus really did this whole disappeared and then three days later, you know, he showed back up? Coincidentally, he did. We go to Matthew. God showed it to him. Matthew 28, we've got Jesus and we've got this scene. Jesus died. They took him to the tomb. They rolled the stone in front of the tomb. He's in there three days, part of three days, part of three nights. He's in there. Mary and the disciples, or Mary and some Marys come on that morning after, the morning that he rose. They come to see. But on that third day, there was something special on that third day. They came to, you know, honor him or anoint his body or something. And on that third day, there was an earthquake right there at that, at that scene. So picture, there's some Roman guards there. The Marys come. And right as kind of all this is happening, the, the stones rolled there. Jesus is supposed to be inside. But, of course, we know he's not. That's when he died and he, was, he went into the pits of the earth to tell people about salvation. There was an earthquake. An angel comes and rolls back the stone of Jesus' tomb. Jesus shows up and gives, gives the Marys that had come to, you know, see him. He gives them some directions. He tells them, go back to the disciples. Tell them this for me. Gives them some directions. Well, the whole time this is happening, big earthquake, angel comes, sits on the rock. The Roman soldiers are still there. What are they doing? The whole time the Roman guards were there stationed at his tomb. But they, when this all happened... They fell to the ground and they acted like dead men out of fear from what they saw because they were afraid. So they saw the angel. They saw Jesus. What happens next? Matthew 28, 11 through 15. I'll explain it to you. 
Now while they, that would be the Marys, were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that happened. So now these have got the guards and they're laying there like dead men. And they saw everything that was going on. They saw Jesus walk out of the tomb or show up to the Marys. They saw the angel sitting on the stone. And they say that, but they're laying there all scared like dead men on the ground, but they've still seen it all. So afterwards, the Marys leave, the guards get up, they go into the city and they tell, they talk to the Pharisees and they report to them all the things that just happened. So when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, these are the religious leaders now, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will oppose him and make you secure. So that they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying was commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So God made them, forced them, you'd say, to realize what Jesus said about Jonah in, in the belly of the you know, whale or in, in the belly of the great fish, three days, three nights. Jesus dead three days, three nights. Now all of a sudden it comes. God made them see this real thing that happened. He brought it to their attention by these soldiers. Who, by the way, just an interesting fact, the Roman soldiers, if they lost the prisoner, they were put to death. Okay, so by him, them going to the religious leaders, they actually were kind of figuring as they're walking there, well, we're going to our execution. Okay, but they did it anyway. God made them. Just so he could put it in the face of the religious leaders and say, yes, Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do. But what did they do? Did they believe? No. They still refused to believe. You see where the title of our sermon came from today. Then they still refused to believe. God put that proof out there, allowed them to know the truth, and they still refused to believe the truth. Sad, sad Sad, sad, sad. Almost makes me want to cry. So this attitude of refusing to believe is actually totally sinful. And sin itself has consequences, of course. So that's what the Bible says. We sin, our sin has consequences. So Jesus goes on in the next two verses to give some powerful statements to them about the consequences of their sin and refusing to believe in him and especially after what they just saw. Let's read with, read with me verse 41, Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh, he says to them, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is there, is here. So Jesus tells them that the Ninevites are going to judge his generation and condemn it on judgment day because they accepted Jonah's message but rejected Jesus' message. And he says, and I'm greater than Jonah. That was, in essence, what he just said there in a nutshell in verse 41. So let's look at why this statement was so powerful to them about the consequences of their sin. First, get this, the Ninevites were not God's chosen race of people. The Ninevites were Gentiles, they were actually Assyrian, and they were actually heathens as well. 
such a brutal, as I mentioned earlier, such a brutal, evil race of people. God tells Jonah in Jonah 1 to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And I don't know about you, but when God gives that kind of an account of some kind of people or city, that's pretty it's a pretty bad rap sheet. I wouldn't want God, God Almighty, to say that to me. Because, I mean, we might look at something and say, oh, that's such an evil thing. But when God says, look at this, go to this evil people and tell them this, because their wickedness has come up against me, that's, that's pretty bad. There's probably really not much worse than that can get there. Okay, so wham, that's one consequence for their sin. That this evil, wicked group of people was going to stand up in judgment against these Jews. Secondly, it gets worse. As we keep going on, it's going to get worse. And you think that's enough? It's going to, it gets worse and worse and worse. The city of Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And even worse, are you ready for this? It was the center, not just a place. It was a center for the worship of Ishtar or Eshtarti, a fertility goddess. So they were not only an evil heathen society, but they were the leaders in their area of the pagan worship of a false god as well. Like I told you, it gets worse. And yet Jesus just said, for their sin, this, now I'm getting into how evil this city is, how evil this city is, even they, are going to rise up against you Jews who are my people and condemn you. Let's keep getting worse. When you add Jesus' additional statements here and the situation that happened here, this evil, heathen, pagan, worshiping society of people, leaders of the pagan, worshiping society of people, actually repented at the preaching of Jonah. And Jonah, as I said earlier, didn't even do any miracles. While God's chosen people, these Jews here, refused to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah when he did a whole bunch of miracles all the time, his whole ministry that he did right in front of the Jews. It gets worse, though. Actually, it gets worse. Listen to Jonah's message that he gives to the Ninevites. How could it get any worse, you might say? Oh, it does. Listen to his message. Jonah's message. Jonah 3, 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yeah, there's no more. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we have, you know, this message is today in our, you know, gospel today and our presentations today. We call them the turn and burn message. You know, turn to Christ, turn to this, or you're going to burn forever in hell. No. Jonah didn't even give a turn or burn message. Jonah gave, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. His message wasn't loving. His message had no compassion. Nor did he give any signs to back his miracles up. And in it, get this, he did not even tell them that their destruction could be avoided. He just said, hey guys, 40 days, that's it. You're gone. See ya. You're going to be destroyed. There was no, well, if you do this, you can get out of it. No, just 
you're going to be destroyed 40 days. And as I said earlier, if you're familiar with Jonah the prophet, so end of story, Jonah goes through the city, no miracles, proclaims this message. The people see it. The king sees it, proclaims the fast. God sees that they relented. They turned away from their evil. He relents from his destruction of this evil city of Nineveh because they repented, as Jesus said here, of Jonah, because of Jonah's teaching. So if you're familiar with that. Well, after the fact, Jonah goes up and he's sitting on a hill and he's watching the city. And that 40 day comes, 40th day comes, and God had relented and he didn't destroy it. Well, he got mad at God because God didn't destroy the city. God comes to him and they have a little interaction. He says, you know, shall I not have spared these men and all their animals? Because, you know, what they did, they, I mean, they turned. And he got mad at God and he said, isn't this why I didn't want to go? He tells God, isn't this why I didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place? Because I know that you're loving and that you're caring and that if people turn away from their sin, in essence, you'll, you won't destroy them. That's why I didn't want to come here in the first place. What he said to God is, I knew that you were going to turn away if they turned, and I didn't want them to not burn. I wanted them to be destroyed. I wanted that to happen. Jonah wasn't even a nice man. He had no love, no love man, no love prophet. So just a quick recap with all the details that I just brought up, and then we're going to roll it on into the end there. The Ninevites a wicked, heathen, evil, pagan worshiping society repented, and get this, they turned to a God they did not worship and away from their evil ways and their pagan worship at the preaching of an angry prophet that gave them a no way of escape message of condemnation only and never did any miracles or signs to prove or back up what he said. And yet, this people turned to God with all their hearts. So much so is that God said, I relent from my destruction against this city. I have a little thing here I wrote. Wow, and double wow, and triple wow. This whole thing deserves a three wow. And that Jesus used that against these Jews as a consequence of their sin. Imagine how they must have felt. We're, we're God's chosen people. The, the Ninevites, they knew all these details that I just read to you right here. They knew them all. They knew the Ninevites were that kind of people. And they also knew Jonah's preaching. It was widely, commonly known knowledge. And yet for Jesus to say that that generation of people, that, those Ninevites, are going to rise up and judge you? That's your consequence of your sin, guys. You want to keep not believing? Then these people that believe that this, at this angry, hardly a prophet of God, in my book, this guy, I don't even know if the guy actually stopped being mad at God and he actually went to heaven. That's how mad he was at the end of the book of Jonah. That these people that heard this message returned to me and yet you, you see all my signs from my son, this miracle-working, loving, caring person of mine here that I sent for you, and you refuse to believe? Well, you're going to get your consequence of your sin. Can you see why Jesus said to the, that the Ninevites were going to judge his generation? The Jewish people of Jesus' day had no excuses not to believe. 
They saw all the miracles that Jesus did amongst them. They saw all. The Bible has a common theme throughout the New Testament. It kind of goes like this. To those much, to those who much is given, much will be required. And these Jews of Jesus' day had much that God gave them, and yet they still refused to believe. Moving on, last verse, 42, let's read it. More of a consequence, more results of their sin. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So she, this queen of the south, or as the Bible says in 1 Kings 10, 1-13, she is the queen of Sheba, is actually the woman that came to see Solomon. He was a man of God who lived in the Old Testament, one of the great kings of Israel. And so she will judge Jesus' generation on the day of judgment, for she came from the ends of the earth, and she wanted to hear Solomon's wisdom, and yet Jesus is way greater than Solomon. So why is she going to judge the Jews of their sin? You may think, well, this, you know, she seemed pretty nice. If you ever read the account, 1 Kings 10, she's a pretty nice lady. She's not, you know, she came, and, you know, we're going to read the account later, but she was a pretty good gal, and, you know, you know seemingly... And so why is she going to rise up and judge Jesus' generation for their sin? Let's look at it deep. The details on this one are even more mind-blowing than the Ninevites, believe it or not. Absolutely amazing. First, history. History tells us that she was a monarch or sole ruler, queen in Africa, of a majority, actually, of the whole land of Africa. She was like a, a ruler, a monarch queen. means sole. She didn't have a king. She ruled alone kind of like the Queen of England does even now. She, she ruled alone over basically the whole area, whole country of Africa in a, in a main place called Sheba. That was like the capital city or that was the, the main, you know, that was a, the land, the people of Sheba, okay? That's what history tells us. That would have been mainly around the Ethiopian and Yemen areas if you're looking for a place to like, where, well, where did she mainly rule? You know, where'd she kind of rule from? She'd have been in the Ethiopian and the Yemen area. Or as Jesus says here, the ends of the earth, which is it's the it's very south from Israel. It's one of the most south places that you can get from Israel, as far as you know where people would have lived then. The distance between Israel and Ethiopia slash Yemen is twenty five hundred and sixty four kilometers, or two hundred and forty point fifty two meters. Or if you're American like us, because I understand American things better, but I did that for people that aren't on the standard system like ours here or 1,593.3 miles in our USA standard measurement. That's how far the Queen of Sheba was from Israel, where Solomon dwelt. And if you're wanting some kind of mental picture, well, how, how, about 1,600 miles, how, how much is that? That'd be like from Texas to California. So if you want an, you know, an idea how far that is, about, about Texas to California would come about close. Now, in Solomon's day, in case you were wondering, they didn't have airplanes. They didn't have cars. They didn't have speedboats. They didn't have any modes of very fast transportation. They just, you know, had horses or they had boats. That was kind of how it was. They had some sea travel, which is faster than land, and they, and they could have used sea travel. She could have used sea travel to go see Solomon. But there's an Ethiopian fresco 
of the Queen of Sheba on her way to Jerusalem shown riding on a horse with sword and lance. So it's highly probable that she actually went by caravan and on land versus sea. And when you look at the cargo that she brought, we're going to bring that up in a second. When you look at the cargo that she brought, she brought a cargo and she came in a caravan on land. It's highly probable. With that said, let's, let's, let's dig into that a little deeper. Travel time by walking, because of course she would have been on a horse, but that would have been walking, would have taken around 320.5 hours. And if, you continuous, if you're continuously walking, but you know that wasn't happening. They weren't continuously walking with a caravan and cargo of peoples. There had to be stops. There had to, and that was 320.5 hours if they went 24 hours a day. It would have taken you know, 320.5 hours to walk. Now, at a speed of 6 kilometers or 3.7 miles per hour. So if they only traveled 10 hours a day, because, you know, they weren't going to travel 24 hours a day. It, it Just get an estimation here. If they traveled 10 hours a day at 3.7 miles an hour, that's only 37 miles a day. And 37 miles a day and almost 1,600 miles would have taken them about 43 days to make the journey, roughly. But of course, as I said earlier, that figure was somebody traveling alone. Again, she had a caravan of people and they had cargo. She would have been with lots of servants, carrying lots of cargo. She would have been going way slower than 3.7 miles an hour. She probably would have been going somewhere in the range of two to two and a half miles an hour at, you know, on that trip. And that could have taken anywhere between 60 and 80 days, one way to make that journey to go see Solomon. And if you're wondering, that's about two to three months' time that she traveled to go see Solomon. So she and the caravan of servants that came with her, they went a long way to go see Solomon. This wasn't like she opened up her back door and, oh, there he was. Oh, let me go walk and take me 10 minutes to go see it. We think it's long here. You know, I do. If I have to travel to go, you know, to somewhere and it takes a couple hours. Well, I, I kind of think about that trip. Well, that's two hours. Ugh. I have a friend you know, whose son lives in, in, you know, in another state and he doesn't even like traveling the four to six hours to go, you know, see him. He'd rather do it another way, go by plane, because that's all, that's four to six hours. This is 320.5 hours, 40 to 60 days, two to three months that this woman, monarch queen of Africa, by the way, she wasn't used to bowing down to people. This woman, she ruled. Okay? People worship basically her. Okay? People came to her. People honored and reverenced her. Not she went 40 to 60 days to go see some Hebrew king of the Israelites. Are you kidding me? Uh, the facts even get more powerful, if you can believe it or not. Just like the Ninevites, she was not Jewish either. The history of the Queen of Sheba's people group is amazing. History and archaeology tell us that this ancient people group of Sheba practiced star, practiced a star-venerating religion. In case you're wondering what that means, they worshipped stars. They were star worshippers and also venerated, honored as sacred or worshipped the sun and the moon. Even more amazing, Sheba 
the area of Sheba was the center, was a, another one, just like Nineveh, was a center of astronomical worship. And the queen or king was chief astronomer or astrologer. Religious life involved worship of the sun and moon. Shams was the name of their sun god. So where am I going? There's more. Actually, the, the name Sheba or Seba actually means host of heaven and peace. These people were off the deep end. These people worshiped the host of heaven. What's Jesus telling them? The queen of Sheba, who traveled three months to go see a mere man named Solomon and came to see him, and she worshiped the host of heaven. And you Jews say that you worship me? Oh, yeah. She's going to judge you. The facts get more interesting. In, in an interesting ancient Ethiopian text called the Kibra Nagast, the queen is recorded as telling Solomon, We worship the sun, for he cooketh our food, and moreover he illuminateth the darkness, and removeth fear. We call him our king, and we call him our creator. And there are others among our subjects. Some worship stones, some worship trees, and some worship carved figures, and some worship images of gold and silver. I'm going to do it again, folks. Wow. Double wow and triple wow. I got to do it again. Does that not deserve a wow, a wow, and another wow? So here again, her people were big time pagan worshipers. They weren't just your average worshipers. Archaeology, when they go to this area where Sheba was, find all these temples to all these gods. They were flat out pagan, a center, the center of the pagan worshiping area in this African area. And yet she came to give, to, to check out Solomon. But this is actually the biggest one. I think this is actually more than the others. This is why Jesus called her out on, or called them out with, them, with her going to be judging them. Listen to this. Believe it or not, another huge reason I believe that. Listen to this. We're going to read 1 Kings 10, 1 through 12. Now when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. So in essence, she actually did to Solomon what the Pharisees did to Jesus. She came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers, and his entryway by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told to me. So she just said, of all that I just heard before I came, although it was amazing to me to hear what I heard, 
not even half of the truth was given to me. Your wisdom and posterity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are the men and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delights in you. She just gave a blessing to a God she didn't worship. Blessed be the Lord your God whom delighted in you. Setting you on the throne of Israel because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Now, listen to what she did when she repented. Because, see, she came there to test him. And she came there thinking, this guy's a fraud. There's no way he can, you know, do this. But yet, she, look at what she did when she repented. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold. And are you ready for this? That's 4.5 tons of gold, or 9,000 pounds of gold. At the current price of gold, that's $172.8 million. Plus spices in great quantity and precious stones. There never again came such abundance of spices as the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Also, the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of almug uh, wood and precious stones from Ophir. And the king made steps of the algum wood, or almung wood, excuse me, for the house of the Lord, for the king's house. Also, harps and stringed instruments for singers. There never again, there never again came such almug wood, nor has the like been seen to this day. So let's just recap what we just heard real quick. Jesus just told them that this Gentile, pagan-worshipping queen of Sheba, who worshipped the host of heaven, traveled almost 1,600 miles, taking her two to three months of travel with 9,000 pounds of gold, aside other precious materials, uh, and a caravan of people that were with her just to come test Solomon to check out some claims that she heard. So she comes, she tests Solomon because she did not believe the reports about him. And the huge point that I mentioned earlier, according to 1 Kings 10, is that after Solomon proved himself to her, this is key. And this is why I believe that Jesus used her to show them how wrong they were and to show them the consequence of their sin. After Solomon proved himself to her, just as Jesus proved himself to the religious leaders of his day by doing all the miracles, she decided to repent and turn and believe in Solomon while is where they, even after what they saw, refused to believe the miracles and the amazing things that Jesus did in front of them. Now, can you see why Jesus said, even the queen is going to rise up in judgment against you? She believed. And Solomon wasn't even me. Solomon was just a mere man. 
And Solomon, although with great wisdom, he didn't do any miracles. He didn't raise people from the dead. He didn't give the sight to the blind. He didn't make the mute speak. He didn't do any demon possession. And Jesus did all those things. And yet they still refused to believe in him, while as were the Queen of Sheba, once Solomon proved her wrong, she humbled herself and said, you're right, I'm wrong. Wow. And that again deserves the double, or the single, the double and the triple wow, as I've already given two, three times throughout today, to this example that Jesus gave them as far as what this woman, you know, as what in this example, Matthew 12, 42. In closing, so in both of the examples Jesus gave of the Ninevites and of the Queen of Sheba, we saw one common thread in our message today. We saw one common thread. The common thread that we saw was once they really, truly believed what the message that they got was. They, they believed Jonah's message, the Ninevites did, and Sheba, after she saw she was wrong, she believed in Solomon and she repented. That's the common thing. They believed from their hearts and they acted on that belief. And it caused, number one, the Ninevites to turn to a God they did not worship and away from their own pagan worship and their own evil existence. And two, the Queen of Sheba, after testing Solomon, admitted to the report that she heard was only half right and she admitted that she was wrong which led her to give god honor and solomon great honor plus all kinds of riches and all kind of glory to solomon so i ask you today for you not me not solomon not sheba not the ninevites anymore i ask you today if this common same thread is for you as well. Do you really believe in Jesus Christ with all your heart, just like the Ninevites came to do and just like the Queen of Sheba came to do? Or is Jesus just someone you have an intellectual understanding of in your brain? The difference is an eternal one. If you say you believe from your heart, then your life will line up with what Jesus said in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last day, says the day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Does your belief in Jesus Christ cause you to live and act differently. Is your life producing rivers of living water? This living water, Jesus says, or John goes on to say, is the proof of the Holy Spirit that's come inside your life, and He's changing you. At this point, if you want to say I'm this John 7 person, you're turning away from your evil and your sinfulness daily. You're living for Christ the way He said that He wants you to live. You're making a decision to love the things of God and you're making the decision to hate the things of evil 
and of this world. And you're working on a relationship with Jesus Christ every single day. Examining His Word, reading, listening to His Word, talking to Him, having conversation with Him. You're making your aim, your point. I got to do that. I got to spend time with God. No matter how busy I am, I got to spend time with God. And when evil comes your way and there's evil that's before you, oh, I could do it the evil way or I could do it the good way. I could do it the honest way. Are you doing it the honest way in the name of Christ Jesus? Do you live an overall lifestyle of I live for God? If that's not you, then you just have an intellectual belief in Jesus and you've not allowed Jesus to save you from your sins and you're on your way to hell right now. I ask you, please, to repent and believe as the scripture says. You say, well, Pastor Ed, how do I even do that? I'm, I, I, I see what you're saying. Oh, that may be me. Out of... How do I do that? First step, realize you're wrong. Just like Sheba just like the Ninevites. Realize you're wrong and God's right. And then repent, which means turn to Christ with all your heart, with all that's within you, turn to Christ. In James 2, God tells us that faith without works is dead. What does that mean? The Bible says faith without the work of repentance and surrendering your life to God is dead. God wants, first and foremost, you to repent, to surrender your life to God, and then take steps of repentance every day as you live to show God that you're interested in Him. Please, today, repent and believe in Jesus Christ with your whole heart and surrender your whole life to Him now. Please make a decision today. I'm going to live for Jesus Christ from this moment on. And you better apologize to God because if you're wrong and you realize you're wrong, God, I'm so sorry. How, what have I done? You're right. I'm wrong. Repent. Tell him you're sorry. Apologize. And then turn your life and turn your heart and turn to him. God requires you to have more than an intellectual belief in Jesus. Jesus just can't be like all the other millions of beliefs that you have in your head. Oh, I believe that there's a star or stars, and I believe that there's a sun, and I believe that we're living on planet Earth. Although I believe those things. Believe as the scripture says, and repent and turn to him with your whole heart today before it's too late because he's already showed you here I am. Here's how awesome I am. Look at my son that I sent. Look what I did for you. Turn now if that's not you. Turn to Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this message. Thank you so much, Lord God, for the, for the words that you spoke to these Pharisees so many years ago. Lord God, that we could see these words and read these words, Lord God. And, and if we just refuse to believe, Lord God, then your word says, then we'll face the consequences of our sin because really, Lord, if we don't trust and turn in you, to you now, just like the Queen of Sheba did and the Ninevites did, then really Sheba and the Ninevites are going to stand up in our judgment day and they're going to condemn us. Because Jesus, there's no way looking around at all the things and the amazing things that we see today there's, and your word being so accurate and so much truth and so much reality and so much 
that we know about you and we still ah, just refuse to believe that. Lord Jesus, Sheba and the Ninevites will stand up in judgment against those of today that refuse to believe as well too, Lord Jesus. And they'll condemn people right now and since Jesus, Lord, of all their you know, refusing to believe. So Jesus, I pray right now for those out there that refuse to believe. Lord, their consequences of their sin will be eternal fire forever. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to remember that and help them to think about that. I pray that today we'd all examine our lives, Lord Jesus. Our rivers of living water coming out of our mouths and hearts and souls every day, Lord God. Or are you just another belief in our heads, Lord? And Lord, depending on where anybody's at, Lord God, I pray that if people out there right now and you're telling them, no, I'm just a belief in your head, you don't really live for me, Lord, I pray that they would humble themselves before the mighty hand of God. And I pray that they would turn to you right now and say, I'm sorry. And Lord, what have I done? I don't want you just to be a head belief anymore, Lord Jesus. I want you, I want you in me, God. Please save me. I want to live for you. I need you. I pray that they would turn right now this very day. And admit they're wrong, like the Jews of Jesus' day did not. I pray salvation for all those that may listen, or even the families or friends of those that are listening that just refuse to believe. I pray salvation for them today. Wake them up, Lord God. Show them that their sin will have the consequence of hellfire forever, unless they turn and put their total trust and belief in you right now. Make this a reality, Jesus. Please make this a reality. We love you, and I praise you, and I thank you, dear God. Use these words of mine, Lord, to show people they're wrong, to bring them to Christ. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We would like to thank everyone who has joined us today to listen to Pastor Ed Spagnoli bring us more biblical truth as he preaches verse by verse through the Bible. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged to respond to the word of the Lord today, as one life will soon be passed, and only what is done for Jesus Christ will last. If you would like to support this ministry, or contact us for prayer, or for any reason at all, please visit gospelsavingchurch.com and enjoy our beautiful new website and click on the appropriate links. God bless you.